There is only one way. But when you tell people that, make sure you also tell them all are invited. Okay? <laughs> There's only one way, but the invitation is universal. Right? So you always need to include that second part before they call you a bigot for saying that there's only one way. There's only one way, but everyone is invited. Amen. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 with me this morning. And we've reached the point in Peter's letter where he's kind of beginning making a transition here. Uh, in verses 9 and 10 that we were in the last couple of weeks, we reach sort of a climax of Peter reminding us as to who we are, our identity. We've reached that there. And in verses 9 and 10, we are a chosen race, he tells us. Uh, we are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. We are his own special people. We are the people who have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. How many more things can he layer on to help us get the vision of who and what we are in Christ? He just, he just multiplies them. And, and Peter stresses one more matter regarding our identity in verse 10, that we are now the people of God. He writes, who once were not a people. We were no names <laughs> at one time. We were not a people. Who once were not a people, but now are the people of God. The people belonging to God. The people of God. How, how do you do the preposition there? You can go both ways. That is, we are the people of God, meaning we are the very people that belong to God. Now, I don't know about you, but the fact that we belong to Him, there's nothing greater. We are the people of God. That's a gigantically significant piece of our identity. We belong to Him. That's a possessive, right, you grammarians? We are the people of God. And it's also, we are the people who come from God. We are the people that are created by God. You can take it either way, but mainly it is we belong to God. You once were not a people, we didn't belong to Him. But now we are the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now we have obtained mercy. Mercy. Amen. Are you humble enough to need mercy? Well, if you are, you shall receive it. Okay. Many of us live plenty of our lives and we would never have wrought. We would humble ourselves to receive or ask for mercy. I don't need mercy. Weaklings. Right? It's weaklings that need mercy. Yeah. Praise God, we're not what we used to be. We now have obtained mercy. And Peter, in this statement, is referring to the prophet Hosea, chapter 2, verse 23. Briefly consider Hosea's prophecy with me. I'll read it to you in the interest of time. Then I, the Lord 
will sow her for myself in the earth. And I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who were not my people, You are my people. And they shall say, You are my God. That's what Peter is quoting in his verse. The prophecy refers to God's incorporating the Gentiles into his covenant people and their partaking in all of the promises that he made to Israel. Paul explained it this way in Ephesians 3, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. That's what Hosea is referring to. That us Gentiles become fellow heirs, joint heirs. We receive the same inheritance that Israel does. Whatever promises, and we can argue about all the eschatology and all the future, what's important is whatever is in those promises, we are joint heirs, fellow heirs with the believing Jews, and we receive all of them. Okay? We are now a people. We are now the covenant people, the people that belong to God. He is our God, and we are His people in Jesus Christ. That's what Peter is telling these Gentiles that he's writing to. You are now the people of God. The expression, my people, does not refer to only to believing Jews. It refers to all believing Gentiles that Peter is writing to scattered throughout Asia Minor who once were not a people, but now are the people of God. They become God's people when God called them out of darkness into His marvelous light. How do you get into that new covenant? If God calls you in, just like He called Abraham, it's just like He called ancient Israel out of Egypt, that's how you get in, by God's call. And we've gotten into the new covenant by the blood of Christ because He has called us and initiated that relationship with us. That's what Peter is telling us. That's who we are. We have become God's people when God called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. Perhaps the crowning identity which brings along all the other identities, is this promise we read in Leviticus 26, verse 12. I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. Paul, instead of using Hosea 2.23, he uses that Leviticus promise to encourage the Corinthians to cleanse themselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. 2 Corinthians 7.1 Paul quotes that promise of Leviticus 26, I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. And Paul says, Brethren, having these promises, let us perfect holiness in the fear of God. 
That's exactly what Peter is doing here in 1 Peter chapter 2. Having this identity, having these promises, let us abstain. Paul and Peter are doing exactly the same thing. Paul does it with Leviticus chapter 26. Peter does it with Hosea chapter 2 verse 23. And both of them put that foundation that God initiated to make us His people. And that's a great act of mercy. And both of them say, now that's the foundation on which you begin to obey and follow. The following and the obeying doesn't get you in. It's the grace that gets you in. And on the basis of that grace, the only appropriate behavior is to respect this God in view of His mercy. The only appropriate response to God's mercy in your life is to respect the God that's shown you mercy. That's the appropriate response. And that's how ethics is done in the New Testament, by the way. So... We're transitioning to that part in Peter's letter really at this point. Now, when God covenants to be our God, that means He will supply us with everything we need and that He will always be there for us. When He says, I will be your God, you know, if I said that to you, so what? (laughs) Right? But when he says that to you, I will be your God, that means he's committed and will supply to you everything that you need and he will always be there and with you. That's what that covenant promise, that's what those terms mean. That I will be your God. And Paul says... He has proven His commitment to us, as Paul says in Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? That's right. He gave the greatest. Everything else is less. He's already proved that commitment by giving His Son to redeem you. Well, we are to understand ourselves in these identities regardless of how our culture labels us. You see, Peter's given us a nice long list of labels to put on and to remind one another. Now the world, they're going to hurl a whole other set of labels on us, aren't they? Absolutely. And Peter's going to say, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. You see, it was a pejorative. To be called a Christian was a pejorative. A label looked down upon. And so Peter says, if you suffer as a Christian under that pejorative, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. 
So we have this long list of labels about our identity in Christ. And yeah, the world's going to hurl their labels upon us too. I'd rather have God's labels on me. Right? That's right. That's right. That's the situation that, that we are in. Well, let's do an overview of chapter 2, 11, down through chapter 3, verse 7, and then we'll go into detail. But beloved, Peter continues, verse 11, Beloved, I beg you, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Opposing the sins of our flesh is the only way to have our conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that is, the unbelieving world. This is a concern for Peter throughout this letter, that our conduct be honorable before an unbelieving world. We need to have this honorable conduct so that, Peter goes on, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. That's why we need to have the honorable conduct. They will speak against us as evildoers. Yet at the same time, they will observe the good works which leads them to glorify God in the day of visitation. We'll explain that next week. So verses 11 and 12 lay a foundation for Peter's sustained exhortation to submit to authority in verses 13 all the way down to chapter 3, verse 7. Let's keep reading. Verse 13, Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him. Verse 18, jumping forward, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear. Chapter 3, verse 1. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. Chapter 3, verse 7. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife. 11 and 12 are the foundation. Then he launches into this one big block of our honorable behavior is how we react under authority. And so there's, there's where he's taking us in this part of the letter. Now, let's begin with his initial exhortation in verse 11. Notice that it contains one command and three supporting statements. The command is, abstain from fleshly lust. The first supporting statement is an affectionate appeal. Beloved, I implore you to abstain. The command begins with an affectionate appeal. The second supporting statement is how to pursue this command. Beloved, I beg you, 
as sojourners and pilgrims. How do we pursue this? There's a mindset. There's a right way to pursue this as sojourners and pilgrims. The third supporting statement informs us that we are involved in a high-stakes warfare. The well-being of our very souls is at stake. Abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Now let's think about these things. Uh, they are powerful. An affectionate appeal. Peter first affectionately appeals to us to do what he is going to command us to do. He has a heartfelt affection toward them. I like the term beloved. I like that translation and term. The lexicon says, quote, to one who is dearly loved, dear, beloved, prized, valued. Beloved, I implore you. I like that translation. I implore you. I urge you. It's a strong term. This is a very gracious appeal and we should hear it as such. I implore you, beloved. Will we respond to someone else's urging? Will we submit to the exhortation of another? Are we the wise men or women described in the book of Proverbs who will hear an exhortation? Or are we the fools that don't hear an affectionate urging? Will we hear a friend who deeply cares for us that exhorts and urges, reproves with all authority? Will we hear a friend or an elder? Even more than that, will we hear Peter as the sent one of Jesus Christ? Who is Peter? Who is Peter? Who sent Peter? to express these words to you and I. None other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Will we hear the sent one of our Lord Jesus Christ? I hope you will. I hope we will. That's what we have here. An affectionate appeal sent to us from none other than the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. He said, if they hear me, they will hear you. They hear you, they hear me. It's an affectionate appeal. Abstain from fleshly lust. Regarding exhortation in general, we need it. We need to hear commands. We need to be under authority. We need more than suggestions. I need more than suggestions. Or we need more than, would you consider doing this? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. 
I mean, you can say that, 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 you know, sweetness of speech increases learning, one of my favorite phrases, and I say that. You might say, you ought to consider doing this, see, not, not just would you, you see, you, you want to you win them, but you also want to press on them. You know you need to do that with your children, right? <laughs> you think we're any different? <laughs> of course not. We need commands. And Peter has quite a list for us that are coming up. So, Peter is also an example of how exhortation ought to be delivered. Beloved, I urge you. Okay. Or maybe you should shed some tears for that brother who's falling away, you know, before you go and try to talk to him or her. Correct? Maybe you should, should feel some sorrow and pain and do that first and then go talk to her or go talk to him. Okay? Isn't that how you would like to be spoken to? Yes, I have to say that to myself. It's an affectionate appeal. Well, let's go on. Peter is an example of how to do that. He goes on, Beloved, I implore you as sojourners and pilgrims. Okay, He hasn't gotten to the command yet. (laughs) Before he gets to the command, as sojourners and pilgrims. And this is a very significant qualifier. It tells us of the attitude with which we are to pursue this command. The command is not simply abstain from fleshly lust. No. You must abstain in a certain way with a certain attitude. And the attitude is going to make all the difference in the world. The attitude is going to enable you to follow through and do this command. That's right. As foreigners and sojourners abstain from these things. And there are two distinct ideas conveyed in that phrase. Foreignness. Foreignness. I am different. As a member of the royal priesthood, and as a citizen of the holy nation, as one called out of darkness into his marvelous light, I am not living in my native land any longer. Praise God! I'm not living in that native land any longer. I'm a member of a new holy nation. I'm a member of a royal priesthood. I'm part of a new chosen race. I am different. And all of those things make me a foreigner in the nation in which I grew up. I'm a foreigner in this world. I'm now a foreigner in relation to the world that surrounds me. I am fundamentally different. That's not me anymore. 
I'm a new creation in Jesus Christ. I've died and risen in newness of life. I must not forget this. I'm different. I'm a foreigner because God's grace in Jesus Christ has made me different. Those desires no longer characterize me. I must say no to them. They're not reflective of what I really am. That's how you must think. Brothers and sisters, that's gospel holiness. That's gospel sanctification. That's how it works. The other idea is also very significant, and that is our temporalness. Sojourners, I'm just passing through. I'm just passing through this present world. The term sojourner really conveys that in English if we are familiar with the word. I should not live as this world is my long-term residence. Okay, just We don't live like this world is our long-term residence. It just isn't. And I'm not a, you know, let's separate and go live off on a mountain. No, no, no. That's not the full expression of Christianity. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying asceticism and go off to a monastery. I, I don't mean that. So, so we'll have to go to Colossians to deal with that, okay? But this is not my long-term residence. This world is not my long-term residence. And Jesus lived like that, of course. So those two great things. So to achieve a consistent measure of success in obeying the command, abstain from fleshly lust, you must think of yourself and your earthly life in these terms. I am a foreigner. I belong to God. I'm called out. I'm set aside. I'm part of God's temple that he's building. I'm a member of his holy nation. All of those things come to mind. I was going to go to 1 Peter. You can read that on your own. Chapter 4, verses 1. We'll get there in a few months. Maybe longer. We'll get there. You know, they think it's strange, okay? They're going to label you, but let's go on. So having this attitude, then that becomes a strong motivation to obey the command and say no to the desires of the flesh. And even when you have failed and you've caved to a desire of flesh, part of your repentance is to call your identity back to mind. And you go, oh, I caved. But that's not who I am. Thank you, Lord. Enable me not to cave the next time. You see, when you're in the middle of the confession of sin, Lord, forgive me, and the repentance, that's the time to call your identity back to mind as part of that. You see, and that will get you equipped for tomorrow, for the next day. And maybe you'll have to do this every night. That's fine. Do it every night and get ready for the next day. Jesus is with you. 
you make a daily prayer. Father, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Give us our daily bread. Bring your identity into that place. That's New Testament sanctification. And how to pursue it. So now we come to the command itself. Beloved, I implore you as foreigners and sojourners, abstain from fleshly lust. What are fleshly lusts? When we hear the term flesh, we normally think of our physical bodies, and sin is often associated with what we do with our bodies. But in the New Testament, flesh also refers to human nature, which is corrupted by sin. That corruption is manifested in us by desiring things for which God says no. Desiring things for which God says no. I prefer the term desire instead of lust because when we hear the term lust, we predominantly think of the sexual sinful desires. But the exhortation here is broader than abstaining from misusing your sexuality or using your sexuality in ways for which God says no. That's certainly part of this. And the command is is broader than that. Certainly desiring to use our sexuality, I've already said that, the command is to abstain from anything for which God says no. That's how I like to think about it. He is the final authority over our lives. And our submitting to His authority, now listen to this, our submitting to His authority is always good for us. Our submitting to His authority is always good for you. I can say that in an absolute sense because He is a good God. And it is a good God that calls you to submit to Him. Right? And say no because He says no. You must think these things through. And that's how you must think. And how I must think. That's what abstaining from fleshly desires means. Now God says no in two ways. He says no in His Word. That's the first one we think of, of course. He's clear. He says no in His Word. You don't need to add any additional rules and regulations of your own. Just focus on the ones that he says no to. That's not hard to understand. But there's a second way that he says no that's a bit more difficult. He also says no in his providences. 
in his sovereign providence, he also says no, doesn't he? And when our desires for something non-sinful are so great that we commit other kinds of sins, we can be sure such a desire is a fleshly desire. And it needs to be abstained from. There's a specific name for that type of fleshly desire. Coveting. Coveting. And it's forbidden in the Tenth Commandment. You see, we can desire something, even a non-sinful thing. We can desire it so greatly that we're willing to sin. Right? Well, here's one. I desire that my children obey me. Oh, now, that's a good desire. But you can desire that so strongly that you sin, right? One way or another. That's a good desire, but you're willing to pursue a sinful means to obtain that desire. See, that's a fleshly desire. Because God says, no, that's not the means to use to get your wife to love you or to get your husband to love you. That's not the means to use. It's a great desire. I desire that my husband would love me and that he would demonstrate that love and affection for me. That's that's a God-given good desire. But if you use some sinful means to try to obtain that, no. No. So God says no in two ways. He says no in his word. And he says no in his providence. I wanted that job. I wanted to get into that school. Whatever. I wanted to to win the championship. (laughs) Those are... You understand. Peter's command is simple. You don't negotiate... You don't consider. You simply abstain. You say no. Don't participate and move on. And as you respond to the exhortation, remember, you are now part of God's holy nation and a foreigner. You need to behave like one. You're a foreigner. You need to behave like one. And you know, you're a foreigner to that nation in which you were formerly enslaved. You were formerly enslaved. Now you've been set free. So with that awareness, you say no. Now there's one more motivation to abstain. And it trails the command, but it's a very powerful one. Beloved, I implore you as sojourners and foreigners, abstain from fleshly lusts. Now listen to this. Which wage war against the soul. Mm. You know, what if we just put you in a helicopter and went out there on the battlefield and dropped you behind the enemy lines? Dropped you on the enemy side of the line. 
You think that might get your attention? You've been dropped into the war right in the middle of the enemy's territory. That's the Christian life, brothers and sisters. That's the metaphor. It's not my, that's Peter's word. He chose the word there. I implore you to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. A life and death struggle is taking place in all of our lives. Those fleshly desires wage war against your souls. These desires are against the true, the best interest of your soul. When you're tempted by Satan, he shuts your mind off. He does that. Satan turned Eve's mind all off about the things that God said and put everything he wanted to say into her head. It's the same happens every day. It's never changed. The temptation, Satan, shuts your mind off about everything that God has said Turns your mind open about all the stuff he wants to put in there. That's where it starts. No, that desire is harmful to you. That desire of the flesh is harmful to you. It wages war against your soul. This is a high-stakes situation that we're in. This is Scripture's language. You know this. Fulfilling those desires will rob your joy, destroy your peace, They will destroy your hope. With joy, peace, and hope being destroyed, your ability to live a life that fulfills your calling of proclaiming the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness in the light, that will all be greatly undermined. These desires will undermine your true calling. Fulfilling them, they will have that effect. Your joy, your peace, your hope, your calling, your zeal, all of those things will be weakened when you indulge those desires instead of abstaining them. These fleshly desires will indispose you to every truly spiritual work. They'll cool your soul off. They'll dampen your affection. (laughs) They'll weaken your resolve. All of that. They wage war against your soul. They will indispose you, I've already said, to every spiritual work. Prayer, worship, leading your family, living as a light 
in a dark world, evangelizing, performing acts of mercy. You know, how do you go do that hospital visit when you've just given in to one of the desires of the flesh and your conscience is on fire And now you're called to do an act of mercy. It's connected, isn't it? Oh, yeah. These things wage war against our souls. Yeah. Brothers and sisters, you know this by experience. (laughs) We all know this by experience, don't we? I know this by experience. How can I talk to you like this? (laughs) Because I know this by experience. That's why I'm just sharing my own experience with you. We know this. So, when we fail to abstain, the war against our souls advances And the enemy has gained a little more ground. Gained a little more ground. So allowing fleshly desires, entertaining them, even encouraging them, is to invite the enemy forces to shell your soul. Those fleshly desires, Peter says, wage war against your soul. It's his illustration, not mine. And soul meaning our whole self as a person with our new identity in Christ. That's what soul means. Our whole new self as a person. If your spiritual life and walk seems powerless and weakly, you might need to look here to this matter. May God, by His mercy, call you to open up. Pray as David prayed. Reveal to me if there's any hurtful way in me. He's a merciful God. He'll answer that prayer like a loving father would as a child went to the father and said, Father, how am I doing? Tell me, Father, how am I doing? The Lord will just graciously answer that prayer in kindness and with affection. Oh, my daughter. Oh, my daughter. I'm disappointed in you. I love you, but I'm disappointed in you in this area. You can do better, my daughter. Receive some advice from me, my dear daughter, my dear son. That's how he will respond. God knows your frame. He pities us as a father pities his little children. See that? The way is always open. The Son's blood has assured you have a throne of grace and mercy. Always open. Always open. Some of these are hard commands. Brings conviction. So we must put some gospel in there. (laughs) Yes. So, we're done. Let's pray. Lord, what a gracious Father You are.
And what a commitment you've made by making us your people. Lord, we cannot think of any honor greater than we are your people. That we belong to you. And you are our portion. As the psalmist got out of the doldrums of his bitterness and ended up saying, Whom do we have in heaven but you? And there's nothing upon earth that we desire than you. And surely the nearness of God is my good. Thank you, Father, that you're a God not afar off. You've come so close in your Son, the Lord Jesus. And Father, forgive us. For many times we haven't said no. And we pray, O Holy Spirit, that bring your truths and thoughts of who we are, Lord. Bring them crashing into our minds at the moment when we need to know them and hear them. Lord, would you do that for us? You've promised to. We trust you will. Thank you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.